No one wants to hear from their uncool aunt's older sister what to read. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if I describe it as slaps. <laughs> right. <laughs> everybody. Welcome back to Michelled, your bi-weekly dose of bookstore love. I'm your host, Nicole Brinkley, recording this introduction for you after an ice storm has left our whole house coated in a sugar-like glaze of ice. If you hear tinkling in the background, it's the ice slowly melting onto the sidewalk below. If this is your first episode, welcome. Every two weeks, I introduce you to an independent bookseller in conversation with an author they love. This week's bookseller is Lily Rugo. Hi, I'm Lily Rugo. I'm a bookseller at the Harvard Bookstore. Lily recorded this episode for us in the fall of 2021, which you'll notice when talk about the supply chain comes up. But I just re-listened to it now, and it's still so fun. Lily's partner for today is Fonda Lee. Hi, I'm Fonda Lee, science fiction and fantasy author. My fantasy trilogy, The Greenbone Saga, concludes with Jade Legacy. Settle in as these two talk about anime, including my personal favorite, Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood, as well as the state of bookstores and how booksellers hand sell books to readers. All right, I'm really excited. I have my jade ready. I'm wearing the one piece that I own. Uh, give me some strength for awesome. this conversation. And I realized, is that something you get asked a lot when you go do fan signings? Like you have to wear it or you have to show it or people ask to see it? Not really. I do have a few pieces mm -hmm. and I have brought them out for uh, book launches and occasional like public events just to you know, get in the mood. Um, but I'm, I don't wear a lot of jewelry, honestly, mm -hmm. every time I think, oh yeah, I should wear that. I end up leaving it in the drawer, <laughs> but, um, I definitely have brought it out sometimes worn green to a few mm -hmm. of my book events. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I wear my jewelry the most often for your books. <laughs> I wear, I wear my jade every pub day. Well, I guess the two pub days that have been so far. Um, but yeah, it, it's fun. It's cool. I love this series. But my favorite thing about the series, and I talked to or mentioned it briefly, is how strong the visual aesthetics are. And you just hosted a really cool art creation, fan art giveaway on yeah. Twitter. Was it mostly on Twitter? Yeah, it was on Twitter and Instagram. Somebody drew these Ooh. two really great pieces of Lon and Aitmata, who are the pillars of the two clans. It was a lot of fun. I have really missed being able to get out and go to book events and talk to fans and do signings. And I had hoped that by November, I would be able to do an in-person book launch for Jade Legacy and, you know, do a tour and go to bookstores and so on. But that's looking a little bit dicey. So doing things online to um, connect with readers has been kind of my way to still get that, like, extroverted fix that I need as an author because yeah. so much of the process is just being by myself and working with my words and mm. every 
book launch is a chance to get out there and remember, oh yeah, like people actually <laughs> read what I write. So not being able to do that has been a big bummer. Um, but the amazing thing is that folks online have been incredibly enthusiastic. I've gotten amazing fan art. I have no artistic ability. I cannot draw stick figures. So anything delights me. Like people will be like, yeah. here is a super messy sketch of your characters. I did it in like five minutes. And I'll be like, wow, this is the best thing ever. So yeah. I'm, I'm very easily pleased um, by any creative work. And it's also incredibly flattering and an mm -hmm. honor when someone reads something that you have written and are they are themselves inspired to do. Yeah. The books, again, the, is, this is like a really big thing, I think, on TikTok right now is the, are you a visual thinker or like a literal thinker? Um, I'm the more literal side. So the fact that I have such a strong visual connection to Jade City, it's, it's, just, it's very good. I appreciate it a whole lot. It's very anime inspired I think which is just it's a lot of fun so I think it just it really lends itself to fan creation which I'm really it's always nice to see when an author leans into that yeah well the aesthetics of the books are very much inspired by film so I think mm. I've talked about this a number of times in different contexts but the Greenbone saga is largely inspired by both um, western and eastern media so I have influences from epic fantasy but also like crime dramas like godfather and goodfellas and sopranos and mm. also like all the hong kong cinema yeah with you know john woo movies starring chow yun fat <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. there's there's that blending of those influences and a lot of the visual aesthetic definitely was what i was going for in the work because you know what is a a gangster family saga without <laughs> the dark alleyways and the light mm -hmm. reflecting off of luxury cars and yeah. men in suits, right? So that was very much the feel that I wanted to evoke in readers. Yeah. You mentioned you watch a lot of anime, especially you said during the pandemic. <laughs> a guilty. Because <laughs> <laughs> there was also, there's a lot of Cowboy Bebop vibes, I think, in the Greenbone saga. So I had not watched all of Cowboy Bebop um, before oh, I wrote fascinating. Those, before I wrote the books. In fact, I only watched, I had seen like an episode here and there um, throughout my youth, yeah. but I only sat down and watched all of Cowboy Bebop like straight through during the pandemic. Oh, and now wow. I'm, now I'm like cautiously optimistic for the live action adaptation. I'm normally mm. highly pessimistic um, about live action uh, adaptations but yeah. um, this time I'm kind of like okay it has John Cho maybe I will like I will give it a chance personally I'm not even the biggest Cowboy Bebop fan I binged it a summers ago and it was good and I liked it but I have such a hard fest rule against live action like not even John Cho can sway me I'm not sure how I'm feeling about this one I'm I watched the title sequence and it just kind of looked like a really high budget cosplay <laughs> Yeah, well, they did pretty much reproduce the intro. Yeah, it was pretty shot by shot, so good for them. Um, do you have a favorite anime? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, okay, so, I mean, I would say... So, Full Metal Alchemist, Brotherhood, Attack on Titan, and Death Note. I love oh, all oh. of those, but they're also, like, everyone loves yeah. those. Yeah. So, I would say, like, recently... 
Steins Gate has been Ooh. one of my favorites. I love Steins Gate. And I, I feel like it's one of those series that a lot of people give up on kind of early. And then it gets yeah. so good. But it's I really don't good. even really like time travel stories. Like as a science fiction and fantasy author, mm-hmm. I kind of bounce off of most time travel stories I find them to be more kind of like a chicken and egg paradox that's clever like trying to be too smart for its own good and so there aren't that many time travel stories I actually really like and Steins Gate is probably one of the few um, so for those of you who have never heard of Steins Gate it is oh, how do I even describe it it's a time yeah. travel story about this mad scientist and his cast of misfits who accidentally invent time travel but things go sideways in terrible ways and they have to kind of prevent this apocalyptic like future scenario Mm -hmm. and it's it's hard to describe uh unless you (laughs) unless you sit down and invest in it yeah it is really hard to describe because i mean the point i guess of a time travel show is it's not super linear so there's not a huge or there's not like a very obvious through line or arc that you can really go with Um, but it is a good one you do have to push past I think like the first three episodes are kind of slow-ish that's I think a lot of the people's drop-off points I know there's like a movie and a second season I haven't seen any of those also there is some light transphobia in the first half yes there there is definitely some stuff that like raises your eyebrows where you're like okay yeah that's that's not handled the best yeah. So, yeah, you do have to kind of be aware of that. Yeah, so be aware of that and then, you know, watch if it's up to you. But it is it is a good watch. I, I did enjoy the show. What about you? What's your favorite anime? Uh, it's so basic. I do love Brotherhood. I, I watch that every year. I rewatch Brotherhood every single year. <laughs> that sounds year. like a great time. Um, my first anime was Cardcaptor Sakura, of course. And I say first anime because that was the first one I watched in Japanese. Like, my dad, we got... Uh, from Netflix, when they were still mailing DVDs, my dad would get like one or two at a time every week. Uh, and that was how I watched anime. <laughs> and then in high school, my other friends who watched anime, they said, if you like Avatar, you would really like Brotherhood. And I watched the wrong one. I watched Full Metal Alchemist first. Right. Like a first few episodes. And my friend got really mad at me. He was like, no, you watched the bad one. You Sit down, watch this one. <laughs> and uh, And then I did. And it's... Yeah, it's basic, but it's popular for a reason. It's perfect. Yeah. And then, yeah. I don't know, I go in between, like, huge epic sagas, like Brotherhood or, like, Deep Grey Man. And then I also also alternate with, like, my favorite fluff ones are, like, Yuri on Ice mm-hmm. or High School Host Club. Right. I think my my favorite fluff one is Haikyuu. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm so invested in volleyball. <laughs> even play volleyball. <laughs> or even never, like, really cared for for like watching college sports or high school sports or but yep. I'm so invested <laughs> it's interesting that you said you felt anime influences in the Greenbone saga because I was not a big anime watcher prior oh. to the pandemic um, but really the pandemic is what like shifted it into high gear <laughs> and I was like okay I'm like watching all of Hunter Hunter all of <laughs> like uh, My Hero Academia, like shows with long seasons. I have not attempted to uh, watch One Piece, even though people, it has such a hardcore fan base, but it is just, it's too much of a commitment 
it's way too much of a commitment, especially if you're trying to write a book. I can't imagine. Right. Um, but I think one of the reasons why you might have felt some of that influence in the trilogy is because one thing that I have found that Asian media does really well mm -hmm. is get you invested in those characters. It takes the time to build up those characters and get you invested in them rather than like, I think what a lot of Hollywood media does, which is immediately have to start off with uh, plot and mm -hmm. thrills and, you know, catch you in like the first five minutes with a big action sequence. Well, yeah. um, I certainly felt like K-dramas, anime, like <laughs> Asian media tends to be a little bit more patient with its characters and get you really invested. And then the knives come out. And that was one thing that I was going for with the Greenbone Saga. I think if there's ever one kind of the, the thing that some people drop out of my first book, Jade City, from it's mm. the kind of expect there to be more big martial arts fights and action right off the bat, especially right. because the book is pitched as, you know, um, martial arts and fantasy and gangsters and so on. But for me, it's really like the, the setting up of the characters that drives the like first part of that story. And that I think comes very strongly from the influence of Asian media. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense when you explain it, explain it like that. I've never, that's not something I've thought of, but that's definitely something I've noticed. I don't know. You also mentioned that like we could talk about Shang-Chi and I think that's the same storytelling aspect that they went with in Shang-Chi. I read, I can't remember who wrote it, it's on inverse.com. It was the history of Shang-Chi, sorry. And like who the character is and the racist origins of it and stuff like that. And so the movie did what you were talking about. It really got you invested in the characters and who they were individually and as a family before they're like, okay, and here's a giant monster fight. Right. And I think it, it had to do that because... It was introducing characters that aren't as familiar yeah. um, to MCU fans as you know, Iron Man, Spider-Man. Yeah. Like so um, it, it did have to do more of that work. And I'm really glad they leaned into that sort of family story and, and building mm -hmm. him up. I wrote Shang-Chi briefly for Marvel. I did a... What? Yeah, I did. There was a uh, like a mini arc of Shang-Chi that was attached to this... Um, this comic book called oh. Swordmaster. So Swordmaster had a B-side comic to it. And I got asked by the writer, Greg Pak, if he, I would co-write the Shang-Chi arc with him, which was really cool. It was like yeah. a short run, but it was fun to like play with that character um, for a while. And oh, so that cool. like got me into, you know, in order to write it, I was like looking into sort of history of Shang-Chi and like, yeah. uh, of him as a character and some of the backstory and so on and you're right like there's so much like racist origin to Shang-Chi <laughs> but there's also like a lot to mind to sort of reclaim mm -hmm. that and and like I mean there's also a lot of just cool like the fact that he was you know really the first Marvel Asian American uh, Asian superhero and to kind of turn his story into one that's relatably Asian American I think yeah. is really smart on the part of the filmmakers yeah, I it definitely felt I don't know, I don't know if it's like it reclaimed is the word, but that's what was happening, and I really appreciated that. Um, what did you think of the movie? I assume you saw it. 
Yeah, I did. <laughs> um, I'm not normally a huge Marvel fan, I would say. Yeah. Like, I'm sort of a casual Marvel fan. I'm not a completionist. I don't like, watch every <laughs> single Marvel thing that there is. Um, but I really enjoyed it. And I loved some of those fight sequences, like the yeah. one on the bus. That was so incredible. Cool. Yeah, amazing. It was so um, cool. You know, it did get very, like, over the top fantasy monsters uh-huh. for me at the end. Yeah. <laughs> but overall, I enjoyed the heck out of it. And I was so happy, plus also relieved. Mm-hmm. Like that they didn't mess it up, that this wasn't yeah. like another Mulan situation. <laughs> so I was just so happy when I came out of it that I was like, oh, they did it justice. You know, like they did yeah. it right. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I loved it. I'm the opposite. Uh, I have seen at least 90% of everything Marvel has created. <laughs> it right. was one of those things of like, I kind of was a casual fan. And then my friend and I started talking about it. We have our own podcast about it, actually. So now I am like contractually obligated to watch everything Marvel does unless it's super violent. That's my one caveat. So it, I was really kind of looking forward to it. I was a little apathetic because I'm not a huge fan of Simu Liu and this movie is all about him. But then I saw it and I was really excited and I thought it was really good. It was like, you know, of the origin stories, it was really fun. It's not the the first Captain America, but it's also not Thor. So I'm good. I'm good with that middle place. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm curious to hear how things are going in the bookselling world these days. I mean, uh, I feel like indie bookstores have had a a rough time over the last couple of years. Um, And on one hand, people are reading a lot. Yeah. But on the other you know, pandemic and <laughs> lack of yeah, ability to browse. Um, so how have things been for, for you and for Harvard Books? Uh, well, I mean, the answer I give for most part is we we landed on our feet. Um, I've only been a bookseller for about two and a half years. I started March 2019. So I had a solid year before time and now a solid year bad time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know... We are one of the larger indie bookstores in the Boston, Cambridge, Massachusetts area, but we also got a lot of small business loans and stuff like that. So it was a dark time. It was not a time I was particularly happy to go through, but we're here. Um, I didn't get laid off, which is actually kind of amazing, especially for a retail worker, um, which I think was, again, part of the government loans is we were able to keep everyone on staff. But it was a lot of figuring out a whole new method of doing our jobs every 48 hours. And mm-hmm. so I joke a lot with my coworkers and my friends of like, this pandemic has been 10 years. So every now and then we'll talk about like, oh, remember when we had to wipe everything down with Clorox wipes once every hour? And it's like, oh, yeah, that was year two of the pandemic when we thought it was transmissible by surfaces. I remember that. And then there was a period of like, remember when the USPS had their budget cut? And I was like, oh yeah, that was year seven of the pandemic, the holiday season. (laughs) We've adjusted as best we can. Everyone is just trying to do their best. Um, New challenges every day. This year is the supply chain, which I'm sure you've heard about. Yes. Yeah. I I can't even get fully into all of the details because I don't know them. But basically, like if you don't buy your books 
before October 13th, they're going to be gone. You're not going to find anything in December. Supply delays have been really bad. Shipping delays have been really bad. Um, I was just told this morning, and this is like a huge deal for Massachusetts, there's going to be a shortage of Makeway for Ducklings this holiday season, which I didn't think could happen ever in the publishing world. So that'll be fun. As an author who has a book coming out on November 30th, that's terrifying. Um, because Oof, yeah. In my case, um, one of the reasons to have a launch in November, at least the reason that my publisher gave me was, it'll be great because <laughs> it'll be right before the holiday season and that's when everyone is shopping and yeah. it's the third book in the trilogy and it closes it out and it'll be perfect timing. And then, of course... I'm hearing all the chatter about the supply chain issues and how it's going to be hard to find books on shelves and chalk this up for yet another thing that as an author, you have no control over, right? There's so much out of our control. Once we have that book in the publication pipeline, any number of things can happen. Yeah. Only thing I feel like I can do is, um, is encourage readers to pre-order and to support indie bookstores as much as they can. One of the um, things I enjoyed most when I had a book launch was going into the indie bookstores and doing events um, yeah. because they're so much a part of the community and um, the booksellers there, like there's no sort of overstating the difference that it makes when a bookseller at a bookstore can actually put the book into a customer's hands. And if, was able to say, oh, I read this and I can vouch for it. And like, you should check this out. Yeah. Booksellers are probably going to be your biggest hype man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How does it work for you? Like how do staff picks work at Harvard? And like, how do you hand sell when you're on the job? Uh, I was curious about like, how, <laughs> how does it actually work? It involves a lot of eavesdropping, actually. Um, sometimes people will come up and be like, hey, I'm looking for a book for like, whatever. And we'll ask them the basic questions of like, what do they like to read? Or what do you like to read? Um, what was the last book you read or something like that? A lot of the times you have to really get into 20 questions because they'll be like, oh, I like fiction. And you just roll from there. My favorite people to sell to are kids i love whenever kids or parents ask for kids recommendations it's a lot of fun um because then you can also kind of you get a little bit more creative of like well what's the last tv show you liked or what kind of music do you like because like if lizzo was to read a book i think she would really like this one or if iron man was to read something i think you really like this one mm-hmm. um jade city is a book that i recommend to k-pop fans i can't <laughs> I can't explain why that makes sense in my head, but it does. I think if you are any sort of fan of NCT, you'll very much like Jade City. I can't explain that, but it's a fact I feel in my bones. <laughs> I'm I'm very curious about this. For a while, I had a playlist going of like K-pop songs to go with YA books. I don't remember how far I got, but it was a fun little like mental project whenever I read a book. Yeah, so there, that's the fun part of hand-selling. That's the, the best part of the job is getting books you really like into people's hands who are like, I no, I promise you're going to like this book. And the more you like a book, the less you can really articulate why. It's just a lot of like forceful shoving and going like, take it. <laughs> and then that's how you know. That's how you know that like this book is really good. Another way I describe books a lot if they're very good is like, oh, this book slaps, which is, you know, 
super old. No one describes anything as slaps anymore, but that's how you know I really like a book. I was like, oh yeah, Poppy wore slaps. I promise. It's really good. I use slaps. Okay, cool. Do you ever get feedback in the sense that like, do people come back and and tell you that they uh, liked the book that you recommended? Like, do you ever get to see the results? Sometimes the most satisfying thing is whenever they come back for the sequel. Right. Especially at Harvard, because it's a small-ish community in Cambridge. Like, And I've only been there for two years, but I know a lot of our regulars. I know their faces. I don't think they know I recognize them. But it's really satisfying whenever they come back for a sequel. Or my favorite is when they buy the whole series, or like the next two or something. Or like, okay, you're set. You're committed now. Right. I'm curious how you found out about my books in the first place. Uh, how did I... You did an interview with Books and Boba, I think. Oh, okay. 2016, 2017? Yes. Yes. Books and Boba is an Asian American book club podcast. Marvin, one of the hosts and producers, is a friend of mine. He was my boss when I did an internship in Los Angeles. So I went to the first Books and Boba meeting they did in 2016. And I still listen to the show. It's very good to formative you find out all sorts of books they do book news which helps me and my job and they did jade city and i think i'd seen it around and i was like oh yeah i love like gangster stories i can't explain it but like jade is a really cool rock it's one of my favorite gems minerals i don't know what they are um and i was like cool that sounds awesome i'll get to it eventually and then i saw you did the interview with them and i was like okay I have to read the book first, so if I want to listen to this, I don't get spoiled, which actually that's true. Um, Books and Boba spoils a lot, so you have to read the book first. Um, And then that was it. That was it. I was in. I was hooked. It was great. (laughs) That's so cool. I mean, as as an author, I can definitely say that, like, we don't always know what works and what doesn't work in terms of telling people about our books. Mm. And, you know, you get requests, your publicist is like, hey, do you want to do this interview? You know, do you want to go to this event? Um, And you don't necessarily know like how people hear about books and what will finally kind of make somebody interested in a book. My impression has been that it really takes kind of a couple of different touch points. So Mm -hmm. it, it may be like, oh, they saw it mentioned on an article on BuzzFeed one day and, you know, that didn't make them pick it up, but they sort of shelved it in their mind. But then... You know, a week later, their friend mentioned it online. And one week after that, they saw it in a bookstore. So then they picked it up and read it. So there's all these, you sort of have to be in a a number of different places in order for the random thing that will make someone interested in your book. Yeah, the newest thing, and I mean this with love and exasperation, the bane of my existence is book talk right now. Yes. It's... (laughs) I, it's scary and alarming. I mean, good for the author. Very happy for these authors. Book talk is scary. Are you on it? Have you heard about it? I have heard about it. I've dipped my toe into yeah. just checking what, out what it is. But every time I go on there, I'm like, okay, too scary. <laughs> I'm too old. And then I like <laughs> beat it out of there. So I'm, I'm very curious as to like, as a bookseller, what ripple effect you're seeing from book talk. Well, specifically, I became aware of it with They Both Die at the end because it was one of those books that I hadn't really known about or paid attention to. And suddenly we only ever had like two or three on hand and suddenly we couldn't keep it on the shelves fast enough. So finally, this like 
high schooler came up and bought the book and I was like, why? Why are you, where do, where did you read about this book? Why is everyone buying it? And they're like, oh, it's on book talk. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so <laughs> that's how I heard about it. And now me and my coworkers, like the youngest of us is like 21. So we're not fully removed from Gen Z, but still we are caught unawares every time a book goes viral. It's nuts. Also, I'm wow. reading a book that is big on book talk and it's not good. So, mm-hmm. you know, viral books are, take them within a grain of salt, but book talk isn't everything. <laughs> it's a bewildering thing to me because on book talk, from what I can tell, it really is like something will go viral because of the the video that went along with you know someone did a fantastically cute little dance while they were holding this book and now this book is viral yeah like what publisher or author or bookseller could possibly uh, account for that or predict it yeah it's nuts to witness because we'll just like go look at our our like things to put away shelves and it's full of one book and we're like book talk (laughs) every time (laughs) Yeah, that's wild. Um, I have been really encouraged, though, by the amount of BIPOC and queer authors that have been going viral on BookTok, which I think TikTok lends itself, debatable, lends itself a bit more to being more open to different identities and a bit more progressive. But for the most part, especially among the YA books that go viral, it's a lot of very radical books. And that's kind of heartwarming to see of like, okay. Cool. The kid. The kids are. The kids, the kids are all right. Are all right. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does feel like such a Gen Z space. Yeah, and so that may be contributing to that particular <laughs> vibe there. Me and my friends have thrown around the idea of like maybe we should start a book talk. Like we read things. It's our job. And then we look at you know twelve year olds who like it takes so much work to make a single TikTok video, and so huge huge props to those creators because that is a lot um because every time we think about it we look at it and we're like we don't have the time i'm 25 and arthritic i don't this isn't gonna happen (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm like "Hmm, all of those people on book talk could be my children (laughs) (laughs) no one wants to hear from their uncool aunt's older sister what to read (laughs) yeah Especially if I describe it as slaps. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, I do feel like as an author, I kind of uh, imagine how much simpler it would have been even, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, in terms of the social media expectations that there are on authors now. Yeah. Um, I certainly feel it whenever I go into a book launch phase is the amount of time and energy that goes into social media and into yeah. being online and to interacting with people in this semi-public or fully public way mm-hmm. all the time, it can be pretty exhausting. And, you know, it's not every author's forte or mm-hmm. place where they want to be because at any given time, it's a lot easier to be posting on Instagram or saying something on Twitter than it is to be wrangling <laughs> revisions on yeah. your you know, 200,000 word manuscript. So it can be really um, counterproductive to the creative process to have Mm -hmm. kind of that constant online 
input all the time and it's hard to find that balance i can't imagine it's also just scary to be a person online with any sort of following who cares about what you think that's just sounds terrifying to me (laughs) well i've definitely seen a lot of authors leaving Mm -hmm. social media leaving twitter going on hiatus and i have to kind of manage that for myself as well but it's hard when you're going into a book launch because especially you know in the pandemic so much of what happens during book launch time is online but there are plenty of authors I know who have just been like okay I need a like hard impose Mm -hmm. cold turkey cut myself off in order to not let all that noise interfere that makes sense random question that I just thought of does your publisher ever run interference Whenever it's like, okay, clock's ticking, it's social media time. Do they ever give you templates or have to remind you of like, hey, you have to tweet like however many times this week? So they don't stipulate it in those hard and fast rules, but Mm. I certainly feel like there is an expectation on my publisher's part. Um, Mm -hmm. Like they'll say, hey, we're going to run this campaign or like, here's some things you can share online or, Mm -hmm. you know, can you do a video for us? And they do send, like, I remember my publisher sending this long guide of like here's things you can do on instagram here's things you can do on twitter yeah. so, so there is there is definitely that aspect of mm-hmm. it and they are pretty good about saying hey, only do what you're comfortable doing okay cool yeah and you know there's not a like you have to be tweeting this many times a day or like you have to right. be on these platforms they are very um, good about saying do what you're comfortable make it fun you know make sure that you're mixing it up and not just talking about your book but talking about other things and mm-hmm. so they're not that prescriptive right. but um but there is sort of that, that expectation for sure oh cool the more you know um so i think we are just running out of time now <laughs> and thank you so much this was really cool and i hope to see you again on a book tour soon well thank you for putting jade city in your customers hands yeah and fighting the good fight and just really appreciate it. Yeah, Jade so City was my you... first staff wreck at the bookstore. I remember I wanted to see if we carried it and we did, but we didn't carry it in a while. And I was like, why not? And they said it didn't sell at the time. So the loophole for that, at least for us, is you write a staff recommendation for it. So then they have to have like 12 or whatever on hand. And it has been steady ever since. So I'm very That's... proud of that. Jade oh. City is my uh, crowning achievement, I think. In oh, staff thank you. That I mean, that makes me feel so good because oftentimes people say things like, oh, I've never heard of your book or like I went to the bookstore and I couldn't find it, you know, and yeah. that's always disheartening because there's sort of either a virtuous cycle or a vicious cycle mm-hmm. where if the store hasn't stocked the book, then obviously like it's not selling. So then they don't, they keep not stocking it. Yeah. But if they do stock it and one bookseller says, Hey, read this, then it starts this virtuous cycle and then it, it sells steadily. So yeah. um, every single person who does that, uh, you know, I owe them a huge thank you. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and now, now we actually are out of time. Oops. Um... Where can people find you? I, I am at the Harvard Bookstore, probably will be for a bit. We're not the Coop. That's the one owned by Barnes and Nobles. And then I mostly tweet online at Lily underscore Rugo, and you can find whatever else I do through my Twitter. And what about you? You can find me online. My website is fondalee.com. And I'm on Twitter at Fonda J. Lee. And thank everyone for listening, and thank you for, for sitting down with me. This, this thank is really you, everyone. Great. Thank you, Lily. 
And another chapter comes to a close. Thank you all so much for listening. And big thanks to Fonda and Lily for taking the time to record in the chaotic lead up to Christmas last year. If you want more from them or to check out the latest Books and Boba episode featuring Fonda's books, make sure to check out our description box for links. There's a whole bunch of other stuff in there, including our Patreon page, links to Harvard Bookstore, and the Michelle's Hub, which has all our transcripts as well as every place you can listen to the podcast. If you like what we do, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. Next week's episode is going to be great for those of you who like deep dives on how the publishing industry works, and it features an author of sexy Greek reimaginings. Bonus points if you can guess who it is. We'll see you in two weeks. Until then, thank you again for listening, and happy reading. <laughs>